0: Welcome to the Hopeless Wonder podcast extra episode six with me Adam Gipke and my co hosts Craig Rogers and Andy McBride. So guys, welcome again. It's been a really action packed weekend and week and we're leading into some exciting football this week. But before we get into it, how are you guys doing? Uh, Let's start off with Andy.
1: Yeah, I'm doing good.
0: Great, great, great. And yep. Yeah, yep. <laughs> we'll go into your sorrow moment soon. And uh, Craig, how are you feeling?
2: Yeah, I'm good, mate. All good. Um, just apologies to the listeners for my microphone last week if you couldn't hear me. Um, unless you only tune in to listen to Adam and Andy, in which case you probably loved it. But back in this week <laughs> um, and hopefully no technical issues.
0: Great. Well, let's hope it is. Um, let's start off, though, because there's so much to go through. And I'm going to ask you, Craig, a question. Um, Who would you not want to be a fan of right now? Arsenal, Barcelona, Inter Milan or Man United? Oh, wow.
2: Uh, (laughs) I think, for me, Barcelona. uh, They they seem like, on and off the field, the worst of the four. There's probably a few other clubs in Europe you could tag in there. But I think... um, yeah, for me, it would definitely be Barcelona after the result at the weekend and their financial problems off, off the field. I think they're in some real trouble. What about yourself?
0: Um, I, it is really difficult to pick from that kind of quartet. I, I really don't know what what would be worse or what's best. To be fair, um, personally, I'd kind of say maybe Arsenal because you kind of see a decline, whereas the other clubs, we kind of saw it, maybe perhaps beforehand. Um, Maybe I'm wrong in that assumption, but Arsenal, just their performance in the North London derby was shocking. Absolutely shocking. And I don't think it was helped by Arteta's comments after the match, but yeah, absolutely atrocious. And I I don't know if there's a feeling of optimism down there, but we, we covered it, I mean, last week, but it is a really difficult task. But any of those clubs that we've kind of alluded to here in this question, I mean, yeah, you're in for a real difficult period, aren't you? But let's, uh, let's bring in Andy because uh, that's one of the clubs. So, Andy, I mean, out of those four clubs, what would you rather be?
1: I mean, I guess let's give a support one. I uh, can't. I have to sort of cross that <laughs> one out, unfortunately. <laughs> so, but yeah, I think I'd go with um, Barcelona. To be honest, it was a bit of a cross between Arsenal and Barca. But yeah, I think with Barca, it's um, they've gone down hard. Uh, you know, with Arsenal, it's very much like a steady decline after a few years. He gets stabbed with a thousand needles, but with Barca, it's just hit all of a sudden. Um, mm. and I, I don't think their fans really know how to deal with it because they've not been in that situation before um, so yeah I, I wouldn't be I wouldn't want to be a Barca fan at the moment, that's for sure
0: No, it's true and uh, I don't know where you can fix that problem at the moment for Barcelona but Let's bring in Man United then, Andy. Uh, I know you're going to have a lot to say, um, but before we start that, I wanted to bring in a listener question. Uh, we've been sent this by a person called John, and he asks, um, there was a recent article in the press around Edward Wood um, backing Ollie in a transfer window, and his lack of experience is now detrimental to United. Do we think his time is up? Given the recent results, I mean, he sent this question before the United game against West Ham. Um, and certainly even then you might have questioned it, but do you think he should even be given a chance going forward? Uh, I mean Edward's Ed
1: time was off about five years ago, to be honest. Um, so, you know, it's and this whole I mean, it's been whilst we're on the subject of Ed Woodward, you know, there's unsurprisingly um, as o- as often happens with Man United, they tend to in an article gets released basically in the press saying how they're backing the manager, there's gonna be a director of football search, um, and all that kind of stuff. And lo and behold, after a defeat which has been knocked out of the Champions League, it's happened again. Um I, I so I just don't believe a word that comes out the guy's mouth because um, you know, the club needed backing in the summer. We needed a right winger, uh, we needed, you know, a better presence in the midfield we needed a new centre-back um, and we didn't get either so mm. um, I don't see that situation changing in January which would just come out and said that, um, the, that they're aiming for a um, summer transfer window strategy which um, as a bit of a cynic would translate is they're not going to invest in January either um, so yeah, I think until there's a, a, uh, a better structure, uh, which doesn't include Edward dealing with anything football related, um, it's probably going to continue to be a bit difficult there.
0: And let's go into United's performance. So, West Ham was a kind of a strange match. I was kind of looking at it at half time thinking, right, the podcast is going to be around the theme of. What would you prefer to have, a Moyes United side or an Oli Man United side? But then the second half completely changed that. Um, but then we obviously had this recent game that happened yesterday for the listener. That was on Wednesday night with Leipzig. And Man United just, I don't know what happened, but just didn't turn up again for the first half. And then you had these really strange substitutions from Oli. And I know we kind of spoke about it on our group, but... What on earth is possessing Ollie to kind of go with Fosu Mensah and Brandon uh, Williams when you're trying to chase a game like that? I mean, I, I, I've got no answers. I don't know if Craig's got any answers to it, but yeah, I, I'm struggling here.
1: Well, I guess I'll address the West Ham games because that came first. Um, I mean, for 60 minutes, we were easily, it was easily the worst performance of the season. Um, you know we we should have been battered three four five 0 by half time. Uh, we just kept, we we couldn't we couldn't keep the ball. We kept losing it. West Ham were pressing really really well. Uh, they were getting balls into the box and like I said, it was only really just a lack of finishing, which meant we didn't hit. Mm. Um, we d- we did concede two or three goals. I thought Dean Henderson was actually quite all right in goal. Um, but yeah, the second half. You know, I think I acknowledge that changes need to be made. Uh, we had Bruno Rashford on the bench. Uh, I think ideally what he wanted to do was wrestle for the game against Leipzig, uh, but he mm. came with at half time, and the um, the impact was, um, you know, after about ten minutes was stunning. Uh, first we had um, you know the ball straight into Bruno Fernandez, turned nice finish, nobody near him. Um, you know, Mata put through a lovely ball to um, Rashford to clip in for the third goal. And, you know, I, I forget the first goal, which was obviously for Paul Pogba, which came from a Bruno Fernandes' pass. And beautiful finish. Um, I mean, mm. I'll go on to Pogba in a second. But, yeah, I mean, that that um, in itself was a fantastic goal. 25-yarder curler. And that, I guess that kind of sums up the... Um, the frustrating thing about Manchester United, it's that they've got individual quality and abundance. Um, you know, those three goals that we scored were quality goals, uh, good quality goals for good quality passages of play, but um, we didn't do it. And now what happened on Wednesday night was the exact same thing. Now, I mentioned last week against a PSG game that the game was won in the dugout. And I mm. feel that one was in the dugout again. Um, yeah. You know, yet again, you know, has come up against one of the, sort of, the brightest minds in football. Um, you know, you know, Nagelsmann's thirty-three years old, and um, he's already got such a high reputation. Um, mm. and again, a bit like West Ham did, they started really, really aggressive. Now we started with uh, he went with at the he went Solskjaer went with three at the back. Uh, Short come from injury, playing at left centre-back, which he does often. And then with uh, Maguire in the centre of that, and then obviously uh, Lindelof to the right. And then at the wing-back roles, we had wan and Telez. Now, Teles is an actual wing-back, um, so that's fine. Uh, But Wan-Bissaka is not used to playing that role. He's very much like a defensive full-back. He's not, he's not really an asset in any way going forward. And uh, so what, and obviously then we had the uh, Fred partnership um, in defensive <coughs> midfield. So in essence, you had seven defensive players, some vibes in the middle, and then your front players of, you know, Fernandes, um, Greenwood, and um, Martial. So it's, uh, I can see what Ole was trying to do, but we, what Leipzig did really, really well is they just kept overloading the flanks, the, you know, I think uh, Naga's been predicted we would go defensive because we needed a draw, and he just went right. Every time there was a big, big switches from Sabitzer. About six or seven times he switched, switched it to the other flank, and there was about three or four players there, and then three or four players on the other flank. And the defending was absolutely atrocious. I think Juan uh, Basaka had his worst forty-five minutes of the United shirt, um, hands down. Um, Telles wasn't much better, but. I thought it was harsh that he went off because he could have added a bit more from an attacking point of view. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and then you go on to the sort of substitutions, really. It was just, it was just very, very strange. Um, I mean, obviously it didn't help that, you know, Cavani was injured Um you know, we had some suspensions and, yeah, it, there wasn't too much we could do. We had less options up front. But, um, yeah, it's just uh, we brought on Brandon Williams, who's a right-footed left-back. Uh, again, every time the ball went to him, he kept having to cut back at his right foot and, um, you know, slow the play down again. Uh, why Fassi Benzel was brought on needing a bloody goal was ridiculous um it, it was just some baffling substitutions really um definitely so you, definitely you know we got back again we nearly pulled it off um we you know we came roaring back towards the end of the second half but uh that's the difference to what an elite team does because that third goal was an absolute killer um they hit us on the break and you know Both Maguire and De Gea just as culpable as each other because neither of them committed, neither of them put their body on the line, and they just and Leipzig players stuck in and scored. So, yeah, I think all Leipzig did was what West Ham should have done last week. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it also shows as you know as much as Oli's had some good moments, um, when put against um some real tactical, um managers that he's come across in the Champions League, he's come up short, because uh, I think a, a different, you know, a different approach would have been better for those games. I mean, the games against Istanbul, where you Nemanja know, Matic was chasing, um, you know, Denver Bar for who's going to be the slowest person on the pitch foot race. Um, you know, the decision not to take Fred off against PSG, um, you know, the whole not changing the structure quickly enough when it clearly wasn't working against Leipzig. So although there was individual player mistakes, I think in the Champions League, every mistake that Manchester United have made tactically or through players has been punished with a goal. Um, I can't Mm -hmm. think of many mistakes whilst in the league I think you've got away with it a bit more and that's why we're now playing first tonight football
0: Yeah, Craig, is Ollie going to prove us all wrong and pull off a result against Man City this
2: weekend? I wouldn't bet any money on it um, even being at um, Old Trafford, no fans accepted but I, I do think that defensively uh, Manchester United couldn't keep kids out of sweet shop at the moment and <laughs> i think manchester city will have will have too much going forward now the only thing that may do man united a favor is that man city's style of play will probably suit them better than than other teams have played recently and that manchester city do like the ball they do like to come on and if manchester united can break that press and and break forward with pace um you can quite easily see a rashford or a martial get on the end of some Bruno Fernandez um threw balls and that could be the key, but mm. overall I would um I would definitely back Man City, unfortunately. Um and Andy's Andy's right, Solskjaer was just outwitted by a far superior manager. Um and a lot mm. of the, the commentary and the narrative has been it's a huge shock that Man United have went out of the Champions League. I'm I'm not so sure. If you if you said before a ball was kicked in that group that Manchester United would be narrowly tipped. You could have probably said, okay, that's fine. I think where the real kick in the balls comes from is that Man United had such a strong start to the group. Six points out of six, they'd already been to Paris, which was is on paper the hardest game of the group. Mm. So they are six points out of six going into a double header against Istanbul. That that group should be sewn up. That's it. Job done. Yeah. Um, and to capitulate the way they did abroad in, in Turkey, um, and then the PSG loss at home and, and again it at leipzig, I think that's That's more surprising than than the end result overall, but we've spoken about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer um, offline as well, and I think he's probably Mm. going to mill around the top four, top six places all year, which will probably save his job. But, you know, like Andy said, if if Manchester United have aspirations, which of course they do because they're an enormous club um, in the summer, you know, forget what Edward says about, you know, trusting all these transfer policies. It, It has to be another manager in there spending that money.
0: Definitely. And I think I was going to bring up the point about Leipzig's performance of late, because actually prior to this game with Man United, they actually pulled a great result against Bayern Munich, drew three all with them. And it kind of highlighted a few issues for uh, Bayern Munich. But we have to kind of give our hands to Leipzig and in particular Nagelsmann because that performance and you you look at the players that he's got at his disposal. uh, Granted, he's got a lot more money than, say, most Bundesliga clubs, but he's getting the best out of uh, a left-back like Angelino, who's now kind of being coveted as the best performing left-back in Europe, let alone in the Bundesliga um, and, you know, he's getting these talented players like Yusuf Poulsen, who's playing up top as well. Um, so he's building a really talented squad, even though he's had the likes of Werner move on. And even Opicano's um, central defender, um uh, forgotten his name, but his centre-back partnership, uh, Avato, I think his name is, um, he played a blinder again against Man United and I really genuinely feel that Leipzig are going to be one of those outsiders again to potentially challenge for the Champions League. Uh, I don't know what you guys think, but um, bring to the point about what he actually achieves over the weekends against Bayern Munich. I mean, it was very simple. Uh, Bayern Munich kind of displayed a weakness that we probably never ever saw before because everyone's been mesmerised by their attacking quality. But certainly, I mean, for the goals that was conceded, um, Bayern Munich were just so narrow. So it just allows that kind of pacey wingers to really attack them. But all it was was simple balls down the middle of the field. And um, it got highlighted um, by the likes of uh, Raphael Honigstein. Um, who also mentioned about Leroy Sane, who's um, quite shy at defensive duties. And it was highlighted in Centre after the match, Lota, Mateus had to defend him and say the likes of Arjun Robin and Frank Ribéry were also known for being quite slow at their defensive game. Um, but it kind of highlighted, to me anyway, certainly that's possibly why Guardiola didn't fancy him at City. And we're starting to see that. And maybe he's made a blinder in terms of selling him for £70 million. I mean, at the time, I still felt Sane had a lot to offer to City. But certainly on this showing, um, if anything, it highlighted to me that Nagelsmann has matured as a coach. Um, and he's starting to analyse the game a lot more deeper. And I think you saw that with United. You saw that over the weekend with, like, obviously, Bayern. And I wonder now whether, you know, he's got the brains to take on an even bigger challenge. Um, I know we've kind of said about his credentials before, but I don't know about you guys, but he must be knocking on the door of a big club now.
2: Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. I and mean, he's you know, RB Leipzig are no mugs. You're absolutely right. And they, they played well against Bayern. I think Bayern looked tired. They looked really, really tired and um Leroy Sani did look lazy and after the game even his manager Hansi Flick came out and said that Leroy Sane still needs to learn how to be a Bayern Munich player uh, which is quite a, a damning indictment of, of what he thought of his performance but you know Bayern Munich do and have done for their this calendar year played a really high intensity sort of gegenpress press type of football but the problem with that is that if one or two players are tired don't quite press hard enough as a unit it can be quite easy with good ball playing players to to pick through that and attack quickly, which is what you saw in you know Leipzig uh, went ahead twice in that game. Um, not a lot of teams do mm. that against Bayern, and he, yeah, you're right. Hagglesman's got them playing really, really well, and he is absolutely destined for bigger things. I'd love to see him in the Premier League. Um, yeah, you know, Man United could do a lot worse than and see what he's doing next summer. Yeah, Definitely. I'd agree with that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it doesn't seem like a Woodward signing, though, does it, Andy? No, I think, I don't really know what
1: he'll go for next time. I mean, Pochettino seems to be the name that's out there and has been quite consistently in the media. Um, And he's obviously got lots of Premier League experience and that kind of stuff. So I think that's the most likely one. Um, But I think it's difficult to say at the moment uh, because United are absolutely shocking at communicating anything directly to the fans. So, um, mm. yeah, I think I think it, we won't know until the end of the season because part of what I think is going to happen is uh, Pochettino will get snapped up by somebody who act quicker um, cause, and then United will be left in the lurch a little bit going like,
0: oh, what do we do now? Hmm. Definitely. And while Man United were obviously being dumped out of Champions League, we also had some really weird or unsavoury sort of stories to share from Paris as well. Um, And I know, Andy, you wanted to touch on it, but I think it also alludes to what happened over the weekend. So we also saw booing for the Black Lives Matter kneeling at Millwall, but also we saw it at Colchester United as well. So it wasn't just isolated to the Millwall match, but it was highlighted because it was Millwall. Um, but let's revert back to the PSG game. I mean, it's uh, it's great to see the players take a stance and um, it only took 14 minutes before we saw that game being called off. Um, alleged incident around the fourth official naming, um, it's Pierre Wobe, who is the um, assistant coach at here. And uh, yeah, you referred to him in a manner that is obviously deemed racist. Now, we don't know the full ins and outs. It's being interpreted that he did use a racist term. And uh, yeah, UEFA are going to investigate that. They did subsequently play the match yesterday. Um, But we're in 2020, guys. I mean, Jesus, what's going on? It's bad enough year as it is. But to see that happen over the weekend, as well as yesterday and the day before, just crazy, isn't it?
1: yeah it's um unfortunately it just seems to be getting worse at the moment i think um you know i think especially at home here in the uk um it seems that it's people have felt more emboldened to be um forthright with their racist views to put it bluntly i think because mm. of the whole brexit thing and because I hate to delve a little bit politically, but we have a government that doesn't seem to be particularly keen on um, clamping down on it either. Uh, So if you go to the Millwall incident, um, so I mean, what I don't understand is that we've waited months for fans to come back, and Millwall, um, obviously being a London team, uh, you know, they're the one one of the ones fortunate to be in Tier Two. And they're allowed two thousand fans back. So you know you've waited, you've gone to a ballot, you've been one of the select people who've been allowed to go to a game, and then literally before kickoff, you're booing. Um, you're booing the whole people taking a knee, um, and it wasn't you know normally when when people talk about these incidents, the fans will go, "Oh, it's only really an isolated." minority and fine maybe you might be able to get away with that when you've got 20 thirty thousand people at your stadium, but there's only two thousand there. And I think everybody watching it, uh, to everybody watching it, it was pretty bloody loud. So uh to say it was minority, um I think it's yeah, it's rubbish really. Um there was a hell of a lot of them at it. Um and then what was all also more frustrating is that uh, the Millwall war hierarchy said absolutely nothing until almost 24 hours to the next day uh, mm. which i didn't think was an acceptable response um a conservative MP has basically gone well they're just oh um oh they're not being racist they were just um they have a right to protest against a political movement that they don't like yeah. so which um you know, because everyone's all Millwall fans are suddenly become political experts um, overnight, and they're they suddenly experts in Marxist theories, and um, you know they've been focusing on how how the the BLM political arm want to defund the police and stuff. But I think it's just a distraction. Um, yeah. You know, they've had they've got previous for it, they've done it again um and what's really really gutting is that Millwall had a game uh the other day mm. and um they the qpr and the um Millwall fans stood up arms in arms but they didn't kneel which almost one could argue that they've almost the fans have almost won in that respect um so, yeah, I think it does go to highlight that football does seem to be a breeding ground for where extreme views are somewhat deemed acceptable in the confines of a football ground. Um, I think going on to what's been done in Paris, I think um, it's taken the players to go, you know what, we're not playing. And fair play to the PSG players for, you know, it wasn't one of their own teammates, or coaching yeah. staff, but they stood in solidarity Um mm. went, you know what, we'll stick with you. Um, yeah. And they refused to go out on the pitch um, and they played the game the next day. Now that, you know, that sets um, a precedent then, you know, FIFA allowed the game to go ahead the next day. Uh, and I think they've been sort of forced into
0: acting a little bit. And I think it'll be interesting to see what UEFA and FIFA do as a result of the actions that have taken place. So it'll be, for me, interesting to see whether we'll start seeing those suspensions. And, you know, it should be almost like lifetime suspension because that's the only way you're going to set a precedent. I mean... I don't know about you guys, but if you remember like back in the early 90s, you used to see a lot of the Slavic teams kind of either being kicked out of the Europa or the equivalent leagues because of their fans' behaviour. Uh, certainly, you've seen matches played behind closed doors. Um, and also fines, which I've seen also Italian clubs being fined endless amounts. I think Lazio are quite famous for getting fined endless amounts for their fascist and racist fans' behaviour, but I I don't know what is the best precaution or, you know, reaction to this, but certainly what the players did really did stand as a chance for us to really open our eyes up and just say, right, we've had enough now. We can't carry on. um Do you guys share that point of view?
2: Yeah, yeah, I do. And I think the only way that fans will, will take notice um, and change their their behaviour as is, is point deductions and and exclusions from tournaments. I think if a, if a club, as an example, Lazio, because you mentioned them, if they get fined 25 50 €100,000, the fans will see that as, OK, well, it doesn't really affect us, we'll just move on. I don't think it will be until you start deducting points or excluding teams from competitions that fans will really start feeling that. Um, and i think that's the only way you can you can eradicate this it was it was quite saddening I mean, to see uh, what happened in paris and I've, I've heard quite a lot of talk on sort of radio and, and twitter over the last few weeks of um you know we've done the kneeling thing we've done the black lives matter thing is it time for players to stop taking the knee and instances mm. like last night just demonstrate why it is so po- it's so important that they continue to do that and it's around education and every time that a young child watches a football game and players take the knee and they ask one of their family or their brothers or their friends, you know, why are players doing that? And they, then that, it's like it starts a conversation, doesn't it? And it starts a conversation of, oh, well, this is why the players feel this it's important. It's to raise awareness. And that, for me, it's more, it goes beyond any sort of political movement. It's to raise awareness and to create education and, and to start conversations with younger people um, so that we can hopefully eventually sort of um, kick this out of our game.
0: Definitely, and great point there as well. And let's move on to another Champions League match. It was a must-win game for Zinedine Zidane. Um, just bring out this stat that was tweeted by Duncan Alexander. Zidane has lost more games than Steve Bruce this season, and boy, did he need that win midweek against uh, was it Borussia Munch and Gladbach? Um, because potentially, if they'd been knocked out, it would have been the first time since ninety-four ninety-five season where they'd been knocked out. Um, so massive win, but obviously there's greater things or greater issues potentially for Zidane, and I know, Craig, you wanted to speak a bit more extensively about it, but yeah, if you could just fill us in.
2: Well, you're absolutely right. He he needed that win badly. I think if if uh, Real Madrid had gone out um, of the Champions League into the Europa League, he would have been dismissed. The, the talk coming out mm. of Spain is that that would have been the final straw club legend that he is. Um, 25 years um, in a row that, man, that um, Real Madrid have qualified from the group stages of the Champions League. The damage to their brand and their prestige of playing Europa League football, I know we laugh about you know, Thursday nights, but for them, that's a huge deal. And I think they would have probably rather get kicked out of Europe entirely than, than suffer the humiliation <laughs> in their eyes of playing Europa League football. So very, very important. Um, I did want to just touch on the pod. We've spoken about it briefly before, but just, you know, La Liga and, and how open that league is. Um Real Madrid mm. got a quite a fortunate one 0 win away to, to Sevilla, but they still sit in fourth. Barcelona, um, another defeat again away to Cadiz, yeah. um, and they're not no they're no mugs, Cadiz, they're sitting in fifth. Um but they had 18, percent eight percent of the possession, um, <laughs> and Barcelona's goal was an own goal, and it was it was that bad. And you know Barcelona currently sat in ninth. Um, some huge problems. They they've actually got more Champions League points than they have a Liga points, believe it or not, this season. Barcelona, um, and I did some math, so they've they're averaging 1.4 points per game. Uh, and if you extrapolate that out over the course of the season, they'll finish on 53 points. Now, 53 points last season would have landed them in ninth place, um, level with Valencia. So that's the kind of the trajectory and the form that they're going on. Granted, this is a, quite a special season um, for obvious reasons, but you know they are they are in the mire, and you just cannot you cannot bet on Barcelona putting a run of four or five consecutive wins together and really climbing up that table because. At the moment, they look so susceptible. Um, and, you know, they look like they could get beaten any week.
1: Well, they got battered against Juventus, um, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, absolutely battered. That, that goal mm. by uh, the US international Western McKennie was bloody brilliant. He mm. saw it. It was a lovely flight ball into the box. He just absolutely levered it, levered it flying body. It was great. But, yeah, they looked they looked poor at the moment.
2: Weston McKinney, mm. of course, of, of Schalke fame. And the reason he's there is because mm. my good friends in Schalke couldn't afford to, to keep him. But that's uh, Atletico Madrid. They won 2-0 at the weekend against Real Validoid. Um, You know, they're top of the league. Currently on 26 points. Um, they've got a game in hand over Real Madrid. If they win that game, they go nine points clear of Madrid. Um, they've played the same amount of games as Barcelona and they're already 12 clear. So we'll talk about upcoming fixtures later in the pod, I'm sure. But there's a the Madrid derby on Saturday night, and I'm going to put my cards on the table. I think if Atletico Madrid win that game and go 12 points clear of both Barcelona and Madrid, um, I think that league's wrapped up.
1: Uh, I, I, I don't know. I wouldn't say it's wrapped up because um, I think Atletico do have a bit of a habit of choking sometimes. Mm. Um, you know, they do have a habit of like uh, getting sort of bad results against teams that you wouldn't expect them to. So I don't think it's wrapped up,
2: but I think, yeah, the, the odds would be heavily in their favour. They've only conceded two La Liga goals this season so far. They'll look good at the back right enough.
0: They do, but do you think Real Sociedad also stand a no, chance? Because no. they're not, uh, granted, they're an outsider and they've got David Silva in the midfield as well. So do you know what? I think he's pulling the strings right now for them, but I, I just think that because there's no pressure on them and plus they're not in so many competitions compared to the likes of Atletico, which we totally expect they'll probably progress a lot more further in Europe, then do you think that's the time? Because I, I like Andy alluded to, I know of previous times where Atletico did look strong and then the fixture pile-up really took its toll. Um, and maybe they're in a better position because of the type of players they've got compared to those previous seasons. But yeah, something rings a bell in terms of I feel like Atletico still could have that moment of choking or bottling it, um, yeah I don't know, I'm just putting that opinion out there anyway
2: Yeah, no, it's possible, I, I think that you know, Real Sociedad have, have also qualified for the next round of the Europa League um, and Real Sociedad, although they've had a great start this season, they almost remain of a Leicester where they'll have a great start but eventually I think they'll return to form and you know, top four is probably where they'll land um, there's just something about I think, I think Atletico Madrid this year they look absolutely solid at the back. Um albeit they've got a, a doing off of bus um, by Munich sorry in the Champions League. And I think the only two mm. teams that can really challenge them over thirty eight games and um, you know, come Sunday Saturday night, Sunday night could be could be well behind. Um so that's where my money is.
0: So let's bring us into the Premier League. Um, lots of fixtures that took place, but in particular, the Norton and Crosses derby. Um, if the listener doesn't know what I'm talking about, I'm talking, of course, about the North London derby. Um, and the reason why it's called the Norton and Crosses is because of uh, certain facts that Arteta liked, liked to allude to in his press conference, which was the fact that they had so many crosses, yet they couldn't convert. And... Um, Interesting, I got a few stats when I was looking into this case. So, um, prior to, obviously, the game with Arsenal, Spurs had gone 394 minutes without conceding a Premier League goal. Hector Bellerin, as a result of that match with uh, Tottenham, should I say, sorry, has had more foul throws than Aubameyang's scored goals (laughs) this season. And another shocking stat for you guys, Newcastle have scored more goals than Arsenal this season. Holy shit. Um, yeah. Let's let's start. So, um, Andy, it's been a shocker for Arsenal in recent like games, but this was like the cherry on the top right now for Arsenal fans and you saw a lot of their frustrations come out, but where do they go from here? Um I mean they're not gonna
1: get relegated, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I Still mean, possible, <laughs> yeah, but I don't think I don't think it's quite that bad. But it's it's amazing how the narrative can change after a few months. Uh, when they won the FA Cup at the end of last season, um, you know, Arteta was basically the second coming of Jesus, um, as far as uh, Arsenal fans were concerned. Um, in the, you know, it was like, oh, we're playing a good progressive style of football. Knows what he wants. He's getting the players in that he wants. Like we're gonna, you know, we're gonna be challenging top four. Um, you know, some really opti- optimistic Arsenal fans on Twitter are thinking about the title, um, but I think they're somewhat in the minority. But yeah, I think they're expecting a top four challenge this season, um, and it's just gone spectacularly wrong. I think um, I think all that's happened is uh, Mikel Arteta is just a better-looking soldier. Um, <laughs> Because again, like you know, they have nice passages of play. Um, you know, they're quite aesthetically pleasing on the eye on occasion, but they've just got such a soft underbelly uh, that is, you know, whatever defensive partnership they put out there, whether it's Mustafi, whether it's Rob Holding, David Luiz. I think the only one, the only set which really comes out of any credit for them is Gabriel. Um, to be fair, quite good, um, but they just look sh- short of creativity. I think Abamayang signing his new 400 grand a week contract, or however much it is, has um seemed to have forgotten how to score goals. Um, like I not doing much better. Um, I think the European form has kind of been a bit different in the European League, but yeah, they've been um. They they just fell into such an obvious trap, uh, mm-hmm. you know the whole Harry Kane and Son Heung Min combination. Uh, everybody knows by now that Harry Kane's really good at dropping deep and uh, sticking in those first time through balls to yeah. usually Son. Um, I mean, take nothing away from what happened afterwards because there was no keeper in the world that was stopping the shot that came from Son that went into the mm. top corner. I mean, that was one of the goals of the season so far. Um, but, yeah, they just looked so vulnerable. Again, they didn't close Son down for the second goal. Um, and Harry Kane just nonchalantly they whacked it as hard as he could into the roof of the corner. But Arsenal could have honestly played for about, you know, a week and he still wouldn't have scored. And um, Jose did him proper, uh, proper Jose Mourinho style, uh, just sat back and hit them on the break. And I think what we're finding with Tottenham is there's a group of players now that are fully bought in to what yeah. Jose wants. Um, and I don't think Jose's had that recently, uh, especially you know when it came to his time at United. He was always fighting against people, but now every single person in that squad is fighting for the cause. Um, I think to use the Amazon documentary where you, what, where you said you wanted them to be a bit more um, cunt like, um, excuse my French, for any sensitive viewers, um, <laughs> they are being. And you're seeing yeah. a lot more grit, a lot more gritty, and a lot more feisty Tottenham as well. Um, so, yeah, it was certainly. An interesting one to watch, but yeah, I think Arsenal, uh, I think Arteta might be gone by Christmas, to be honest.
0: This is one question I wanted to ask Craig. I mean, one of the things um, we'll speak about Marino in a minute, but one of the things that we said in the last pod was around potentially Arteta not having the players to fit his style of football. I don't know about you, but I didn't see that style of football, and the other question would be is. No one really wants Arsenal players, if I'll be brutally honest. The patch they've got right now in terms of group of players, no one's aspiring to sign as players. So that's probably why half the reason they couldn't bring anyone in because no one really wants to buy the players they've got. So what what can Arteta do if that's the scenario?
2: You're right. And they, they don't have any real... You know, big sellable assets. I wouldn't have thought the talisman Obama Yang has signed a new deal. And is, you know, since he's had his, you know, his flops flip, on. I think they do need to establish a style of play. I heard Arteta after the Wolves game, I believe, talking about crosses, and he said well, we've only well, we had thirty odd crosses into the box, and the more crosses we put in, uh, the more goals we'll score. And I think he said it's just maths. And yeah. I thought it's pretty fucking far from maths, mate you don't <laughs> d- d- that's not a direct correlation and if i was an arsenal fan and i was listening to that i'd be saying get that mentality it's so far to fuck away from this club because it's not 1985 anymore you can't chuck balls mm-hmm. into the box you especially can't chuck balls into the box when you've got lacazette and Obama Yang. two players who are not renowned for their aerial prowess it's entirely the wrong the wrong state of play and listen i could i could wax lyrical for half an hour about that performance on on Sunday, I thought Arsenal were pathetic and I don't use that word lightly. Mm. If I had if I had said to yourself, Adam or Andy, can you give me 100 words on how this London derby is going to pan out? You'd have probably sat down and said, right, Spurs will sit in, they will defend deep, they will absorb <laughs> pressure, they will let Arsenal come on to them, they will wait until Arsenal get to a certain area in their own half, then they will attack yeah. and counter aggressively, they will break with pace and if I said to you, who do you think will score? You'd have probably said, Son and Kane. And that's exactly how that game panned out. And that's what worries me most. And if I was an Arsenal fan, that's what would worry me the most. That if you, I, and Andy, and, and you, we can see it sat here. Arsenal fans can see it. Why can our Arteth not see that? And why have they not got a better plan than the one they brought to, to White Hutley on Sunday? That's the biggest thing that concerns me, is that there is no real plan here. And chucking balls into the box for Bamyang and Lacazette is, is is so far away from how they're going to get out of this mess. It is, it's unreal. I don't know if Arteta will get sacked straight away. I think he's probably got a little bit of credit in the bank. But mm. you're right, they have tailed off massively. And I've, again, I did the little bit of maths of they are currently averaging 1.18 points per game this season. Now, if you extrapolate that over the 38, they'll finish on 45 points. Now, last year, granted, different scenario, that would have only been enough to get them 13th. They would have been sat between Newcastle and Palace. That's how bad this is at the moment for, for Arsenal. Now granted, they have had quite a tough run. Um, you know, they've been away to, to some big clubs and they do have a slightly um easier run coming up. However, they need to get a plan going together. They're not scoring goals, they do look like they can see them at the back. Um and I love the bit of shit that, that um Andy Reached <laughs> with ESPN with the fixture list of Games at the bottom, and they, they included Arsenal in that. Uh, for that good I love that, absolutely love that. But that's the that's the reality. And you're right; they won't get relegated. Let's not let's not get excited. Mm. But you know, Arsenal needs need either Arteta needs to get a plan and a cohesion going, or or they need to look at someone else. And they do not have um, an awful lot of money to reinvent that squad. Um, they really don't. And I think they're in for a, a tough few seasons, not just this one.
1: I think they've made some exceptionally poor decisions as well. I mean, they were crying out yeah. Yeah. for a bit of creativity, uh, but they've basically bombed out um, a World Cup-winning German one who could probably <laughs> have added some... He wouldn't have done any worse than what the players out there would have done. Um, you know, But I think, like I said, I think as we discussed beforehand, there's more than just football reasons why he's not playing at the moment. Um, and then I don't understand why they caved into a bamiang and giving him a 400k contract for a player that is so renowned for his pace um a deadly finishing is that once you if you take pace away from a bamiang there isn't really that much there uh to be perfectly honest like he's not you know he's not a big aerial threat he's um. He's not the most creative player in the world. He's the one who finishes chances. And, you know, I've not really seen that much explosiveness for him this season. Um, and that's he's not going to get any better. I mean, three years' time, he's going to be like 34. Uh yeah. what state of player is he going to be in then? He's certainly not going to be a 400 grand a week player by that point at all. So I think even if Arsenal wanted to, they couldn't spend the money. And you know, I think another mistake that they made, that Arteta made, was bringing Thomas Party back into the lineup. Because he'd only yeah. just recovered from injury. And I think he was rushed back. Uh, toward, when it came to um, I think it was the second goal, he was limping off the pitch at the time. Yeah. Uh, like he couldn't continue playing. And apparently, some reports have come out now saying he's going to be out for two or three months. Um, yeah. I and mean, finally, he's their marquee signing. But if he's not fit, he shouldn't have played. Certainly not from the start. No. Uh, so, yeah, I think they've hamstrung themselves, to be perfectly honest. And I don't really see a, any what sort of solutions they could come up with
0: that's it that's it and um, before we end this point on the Arsenal um, just wanted to fill you in on another stat and I don't know how true this is but Aubameyang only ever headed three goals for Arsenal in his career at Arsenal so um, yeah that kind of shows you that these crosses aren't going to go to much pot in that respect but um, talking about Mourinho obviously we spoke briefly about it already he's been clinical he's been absolutely amazing in terms of what he's done for Spurs I mean, that was a masterclass by Mourinho over Arsenal. But he's actually showed in the last few games that where Tottenham traditionally would choke, they're actually starting to get that belief that they can actually do a lot more this season. And how far do you think Mourinho will be able to bring that optimism to the end of the season? I mean... Is it going to take some injuries before we start seeing them go back to the old Spurs? Or do you think there's going to be a confidence that they can ride out the whole season playing like this?
2: That's the key, isn't it? That is the key. And I'm um, on record in previous shows saying that I, I fancy them to be there they about. I think the only thing that as an Arsenal fan, sorry, Spurs fan would concern me is injury wise. I think if they get an injury to Hoiberg, Son or Kane, it'll be pretty hard for any other player in that squad to come in and do the roles that they they do. Um and one thing they have to look at is Liverpool and Liverpool have performed a lot better than than I thought they would with the injuries that they have. They've had players come in, um, sort of seamlessly fill in for um for injured first teamers and Liverpool are only going to get better. When players start mm-hmm. to come back into the lineup, they're only going to improve whereas with Spurs I feel like this is Peak, and you're right to point out. Is if they can continue to peak like this the entire season, then they're absolutely going to be in the mix. um But injuries is the one. If they can keep those three players in particular fit, I think they've got a chance. But um it's a big ask. It really is. What's your What's your thoughts on that, Andy?
1: I'm also the same. I think I think Huiberg has been one of the signings of the season. Like mm. honestly. Um, the job he, he the job he, he's always like a perfect new player. He could pass the ball nice and tidily, which which you'd expect having you know come through the Bayern Munich youth system. Did actually play a few games for their first team on uh, when back red Pep was there. Um, and it's not really a surprise he pitch picked top of them. I mean he's a, he's a proper bastard as well. Like he gets himself stuck in. He gets in the faces. Um and he he's really composed on the ball like I said like he's a perfect medium midfielder, um. But you're right. I think if anything happens to him or Kane especially, um, because you know with Kane and Son they aren't replaceable. There is they, they they don't have anything really that you could do to replace them. Um, I I mean I'd say along with Lewandowski, Kane's probably the best all-round centre forward in the world right now. Um, as an England fan, if he brings what he's bringing to Spurs in the Euros, we could probably go out and win it. Um, he's that good, like, he hasn't got any weaknesses,
0: definitely. And I think the general window is coming at the right point right now. Um, certainly for the likes of a Spurs where potentially Mourinho is looking to kind of reinforce the performance so far. And one of the players that allegedly they're interested in is Dominic Chabaslai, who's the Hungarian, who we kind of alluded to a few weeks back in terms of his winning goal for Hungary. Uh, amazing goal it was. And currently playing his trade in the Austrian league, um, playing for RB Leipzig's sister club um, at the moment. But It's an interesting point I bring right now to you guys because um, I didn't know how much you knew about it, but I read an article by David Ornstein um, uh, that really brought this to light. So um, you guys may have heard a few rumours going around about his clause, which is rumoured to be around €25 million, which sounds like a snip. And that's why the likes of Real Madrid, Atletico Madrid, Spurs, Arsenal and AC Milan, a host of clubs also potentially out there looking at him. Um, But yeah, just to give the listener some background into this. So um, Dominic Shabashlai has got to make his intentions known by December the 15th if he wants to leave the club. So he needs to let them know by the 15th of December. And then any clubs that want to buy him have to submit a bid by December the 31st. Now, it, it sounds really weird, but it gets a bit more complicated. So... His clause is rumoured to be around 25 million euros. Whoever signs Shabushlai has to pay the full amount in a two-week period after it's been negotiated. Another point, he's got a 20% sell-on clause that would be implemented on future sales. That can't be negotiated, so it can't be used on the profit of a future fee. It has to be of the entirety and Shavaslai is contracted till 2022. So while he looks like a really attractive player, I think potentially it looks like he'll probably just get flown out to Leipzig, to be fair. Um, which would be a shame because I think he's a really talented player. I could see him at a Man United. I could see him at a Spurs, certainly. Um and yeah, it's it's a weird scenario, isn't it? And that shows you how much power agents and potentially clubs are
2: starting to have on these players. Yeah, you usually get this kind of contract fuckery with um, South American players, and that's one of mm. the rumoured reasons why Debala didn't go to Manchester United. Um, it was due to sort of image rights, and some third-party agent owned his rights to his image, or or whatever it was. But I haven't to be honest, I've seen a lot of the boy. I've seen the obligatory YouTube clips, and I've seen a few of his his um, his clips on sort of the BT Goal Show and Champions League. But he does look like a talent, and at twenty years old, um, you can definitely see a bright future ahead of him. I think the Bundesliga might be a good a good place for him to go. Actually, it's a good attacking style of football, um, and he could follow sort of Eric Holland from from Salzburg into the Bundesliga and really catapult his career from there. Um, AC Milan were the club I've seen most closely linked. Um, I wouldn't be surprised at all um, if there's some Premier League club sniffing. That's definitely not.
0: Let's stick with Premier League then. Um, And one of the topics that I've been meaning to kind of introduce is around Sheffield United's performance. So um, before I open it up for you guys to kind of chip in with your thoughts on this, um, so just to give the listeners some background, one point from 11 games, and that one point came at home against Fulham. Um, They've also conceded 41 goals this season so far. Last season... They won the most amount of games by 1-0 and they also only scored 39 goals last season. There seems to be obviously a number of injuries that are hindering their performance this year. Um, critically, the likes of Jack O'Connell, who's the left-sided centre-back who would normally do these uh, mesmerising runs down the wing um, in the kind of weird formation that Sheffield United kind of try and progress their tax but certainly they seem to be missing that. Um, Obviously Wilder tried to address the issues with certain players moving on the likes of Henderson obviously moved on to United back from his loan and then they brought in Ramsdale from Bournemouth that didn't really kind of see them see the same sort of return. They bought the likes of Ampadu uh, Rian Brewster Bogle as well into their squads that haven't kind of lived up to the expectations so um, guys what, what's your thoughts on why Wilder seemingly struggling at Sheffield United and more to the point why is Sheffield United really not able to get the same results that they managed to do last season
2: I think it's a combination of, of two things I think you're right to point out that Henderson um, has gone back to Manchester United, um, a fantastic goalkeeper who had a, a great season there last year. They've all, they're just suffering from that classic, you know, cliche claxon, that second year syndrome where mm. I feel like last season they were a bit of a surprise package. I think not a lot of teams yeah. probably took them overly seriously in their preparation and thought, you know, newly the promoted side, we don't really have to focus on this game and maybe had other priorities when a Sheffield United game was, was a forthcoming. I think now... Because of the success last year, um, clubs are taking them more seriously now. I think their analysis of Sheffield United will be a lot greater. And clubs are now starting to formulate game plans to counteract what Sheffield United did to teams last year. And I think it's now that, you know, the the Sheffield United management team haven't adapted or progressed their game at all. They've tried to do the same things they did last year. Um, And I think now that just most Premier League clubs are taking them seriously, planning for them a little bit better. And I think they're now being found out um, really, um, and you're right. You know, one one point in, in December. Granted, the season started a little bit later, is not a good start. And I, I do feel for Sheffield United. I quite like them as a club. I think they're, a, you know, an exciting team or, or were an exciting team. Um, but I definitely feel the worst from this year. And I think they need to think of something different because the way they're going now, um, they're not going to pick up many points. I don't see them going on a run and maybe picking up you know 15 points out of 21 or anything like that they just seem like a team that are destined for the drop i think Mm.
0: and andy i mean chris wilder's credentials have been highlighted um he hasn't really to be fair experienced too many downfalls in his career as being a manager um and he's managing his boyhood club in sheffield united um this is the first potential test for him um after some of spending a lot of money, whereas previous summer, I didn't really spend that much money. Um, another thing I wanted to kind of put into it as well is last season was kind of refreshing in the sense of how he spoke about situations in particular. I mean, Henderson, he told him to kind of man up in a sense as well around that kind of him trying to aspire to be an England international But do you think that outspoken nature is backfiring on him now? And do you think maybe the players need a different approach from him?
1: Um, I mean, I've not really heard anything to suggest there's any sort of dressing room unrest. I think Hmm. part of what's happened is what Craig alluded to uh, where... the teams have figured them out a bit more, and you know, the whole second season thing has sort of come to light. Um, but I think the other part of it, I think it's just unfortunate that there's a lot of players who are all out of form at the same time. Um, they've, they've got quite an overload of strikers up front. Um, I mean, they've got David um, Goldrick, um, who's never really been a consistent goal scorer throughout his career. He has like you know some spectacular moments but he's more of a person that tends to sort of do the hard yards um you know they've got ony McBurney who's got a good record at championship level but in the premier league apart from he's basically just a low budget scottish andy Cowell. um yeah. like he's a big lad but he doesn't really add much um i think brewster He's shown a lot of promise at Liverpool, but I think the difference is, is that at Liverpool, um, when you're a striker going into a team that is creating lots and lots of chances, uh, more often than not in control of games, it's an easier environment to come into. And he's now been thrust into an environment where he's cost like I think a lot of money for Sheffield United. Mm-hmm. And he's in positions where he's only going to get one or two chances a game, and he's got to take them. And that's a pressure he's not, that's a pressure that you don't, you can't replicate coming off the bench in the for 10 15 minutes or, um, or playing reserve team football. And obviously, he flew under the radar at Swansea a little bit, uh, but there wasn't that pressure. But now there is that pressure, I think he's probably had to take a bit of time to deal with it. I think Ramsdale, um, wasn't the great signing for them because he, he was he wasn't particularly great for Bournemouth, and they proceeded and actually bucket to the goals and hasn't really improved either. Um, so he's you know he might not be losing points for them as such, mm. but he's certainly not earning them any like Henderson was. Um, so yeah, I think they're doing a little bit of a rut. Um, I think they might have to uh, blow the some Allardyce one.
0: So that that was a question I was gonna ask you both. Do you think Chris Wilder should be given at least till the end of the season, given that, you know, he was the man that bought them up and he's made them play this progressive football? Or do you kind of cut your losses now, bring someone else in to kind of stabilize where they are in the Premier League and then push on?
2: I think you'll get time. I think he's you're right to point out he's a club legend. And they seem like a club that have got their heads screwed on. I don't think they'll make any rash decisions. Um, if they go down, I can quite easily see them stick with welder, build and come back up again. I think last last year mm-hmm. was they were they were playing well well beyond um, expectations, and I think they're now returning to the mean. Uh, and I think there's a, a kind of acceptance of the club that you know last last year was a, a bit of a freak. But I think you'll get time. They don't seem like a, a sort of panicky type club. They seem like they're they're prepared for, for whatever the future brings. And I, th- I think he will be kept on, yeah.
0: Cool. And let's not end the podcast too soon. Um, Rangers have won against Lech Poznan 2-0 away from home, confirming top spot in the group. So well done, Craig. Um, um you must be elated with that. But more to the point, um, again this weekend's great result in the league. More misery for Celtic. And I don't know which one's the more misery part. The fact that they kind of didn't really perform over the weekend or the fact that Neil Lennon's been given the vote of confidence. So um, (laughs) fill us in what's happening in Scotland.
2: Well, for for me, the vote of confidence for Neil Lennon is a huge relief. I'm glad that he's (laughs) staying on. I've said before, the longer Neil Lennon stays in that post, the more successful Rangers will be. And I stand by that. Um, not a lot to say about Scotland, actually. You know, Rangers are still good. 4-0, one against Ross County away, which consequently is a team that actually beat Celtic at Parkhead the week prior. Um, yeah. So we uh, we are we are quite comfortable. We've gone 13 points clear now, um, albeit Celtic have two games in hand. So worst case scenario, we're, we're still seven points clear. Um, and then yeah, Celtic drew one all at home to St Johnston now. St Johnston are no mugs. They're not cannon fodder by any stretch of the imagination, but that mm. is... A game that must be won. Um, and more protests last weekend. There's actually a planned protest at one o'clock at Parkhead on on Sunday. Um, the barriers are socially distance, I'm,
0: right? As well,
2: socially distance. I am <laughs> <laughs> led to believe, but the board the board have approved of this um right so they've almost sort of said yes you can protest which for me is even worse as if i was a Celtic fan and i thank my dad every day that i'm not but if i was and we wanted to protest about the board and the board sanctioned it that's a massive kick in the teeth of it almost says you know do what do what you like i mean you knock yourself out it's not going to change anything i think that's you know upset them even more but you're comfortable in a league we're doing well. Lots to play for. Celtic um, next weekend playing last season's you know, Scottish Cup final that's still to be played, um, believe it or not, and we play in the league. So a chance to go potentially 16 points clear and then we play Celtic at Ibrox in the, the sort of New Year fixture. So if we win that again, potentially 19 points clear, although they would, in that case, have three games in hand. But you can start to see now if, and it's something that they've not had for eight or nine years, they've, they've never had that pressure of, having to win every week. So Celtic knew that when Rangers were not in the league or when we were 15 points behind, they could draw a game here, lose a game here, and they would just fix it next week, get back in the saddle because no one would punish them. This, for this Celtic squad this in the Celtic fan base, this is an entirely new form of pressure where they now have to win every week. And, and more than that, they now have to win every week and rely on us um, dropping points. And we don't even look like conceding a goal. Uh, at the moment, I mean, we've considered three goals um, in the league this so far this year. You know, Touchwood, we've got a, a reasonably difficult game at Dundee United. Although they are the promoted side, they're quite a handy side. Um, play them mm. on Sunday up in up in Dundee. So no counting chickens um, as of yet, but we are performing really well. And absolutely tonight, we've beaten Lech Poznan two 0 away from home. We've topped the group, a group that contains Benfica which I, I don't think a lot of people would have backed um, before a ball was kicked. And that 14 points that we've had is the most any Scottish team has ever got in a European group stage. Um, so fantastic. And you know Stephen Gerrard's doing a, a brilliant job and he's restored um, a reputation in Europe to some extent. And we're now a, a, a respected European team, which is a, a far cry from where we were before he joined.
0: Yeah, I'm finding the um, situation at Celtic quite interesting in the sense of you've got the board who are clearly just now stuck in their ways now kind of just regardless of what the fans think they are just gonna stick by Lennon. Um and maybe that's the kind of thing that we alluded to in a few podcasts before in the past where they probably just don't have the money to kind of a move on Lennon and get someone else in, but also to invest into that squad by a sound of it. I mean I don't know what's happened to the money that's you know, from previous Champions League campaigns where it's disappeared to. Um, but we've kind of alluded to the fact that it, it seems like there's going to be a big rebuilding task required at Celtic. Going into this January window, I can't see them signing anyone. Um, no. And maybe that's to the benefit of, obviously, right now, Rangers. It plays into their hands right now. Um But yeah, I just, it's such a mesmerizing kind of thing to see because I've never seen Celtic fans really kind of, I don't know how to best describe it, but explode with rage. That's what it seems like. They just don't know what to do next. And um, yeah, it's going to come to a point where they realize that these fans' protests aren't going to win. So um, yeah, interesting times at Scotland, that's for sure. Um, Guys, I was going to ask you, obviously the World Cup draw was also made. Um, We won't touch on it in too much detail because I'm sure we'll have a Euro pod or World Cup pod eventually. But just to allude to the teams that got drawn out. So Scotland have got Austria, Denmark, Faroe Islands, Moldova and that classic Israel. And then England have got Poland, Hungary, Andorra, Albania and San Marino. Um, Let's start with Craig. Chances, do you think you stand a good
2: chance of making the World Cup based on that group? Well, I think so. If you look at um Scotland's performances during the Euro qualifiers, I think they've been you know, they've they've given a good representation of themselves. You look at that group in Denmark are the, the obvious you know, probably the bookie's favorite to top that group. Um, but yeah, I would I would fancy Scotland to if not automatically qualify at least finish up in a playoff place. Um Austria. I don't watch a lot of Austrian football or follow the national team, but I would probably fancy Scotland over them. Um, mm. It's just a shame that we've got Israel again because I'm sick of watching <laughs> yeah. Scotland versus Israel. It seems like we play them every other week. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, quietly confident in that group. Actually, it, it could have been a lot worse. I think um, I think Scotland have definitely got a chance.
0: Definitely. And uh, Andy, what's your thoughts on England's group?
1: Yeah, I mean, England will walk it pretty much like we do every qualifying group. Really, um, it's yeah, it's not you know uh, the. I guess it would be um, an interesting one for you with England versus Poland. Um, yeah. I guess that'd be a fun family one for you, uh, but yeah, it's just uh, trips to really <laughs> random places like you know Andorra and San Marino <laughs> in the same yeah, group. Exactly, so. Yeah. Yeah, I mean apart from the Poland and maybe the Hungry games, like none of them would be particularly interesting. Um England will plod through as they do normally and then get humbled when on the first half decent team they face.
2: That was a, a question I had actually for both of you. Would you rather as England fans have a group like this where you literally stroll it or would you rather have a, a tougher group where it's a bit more competitive and actually warms you up properly um, towards a, a European or a World Cup championships. What would your thoughts be on that?
1: I'd rather a more competitive uh, group stage. You know, like we're doing South America for their World Cup qualifying. They don't have groups. They just play each other. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> you know, like the, that, that qualifying group, like if you get out of that qualifying group, you fucking earned it. yeah Um, Yeah. like you've legit earned so it's not maybe apart from i don't know venezuela um or ecuador there's not really any easy games and venezuela Mm. and ecuador are kind of a lot better than a lot of smaller nations in europe um so yeah i think um you know obviously the the world cup format especially europe is designed so that the bigger teams make it through to the tournament um, you know make no bones about it that's why that seeding system is in place just to make sure the big teams are there uh, but if they did you know I'd rather they just do it randomly so if you draw a group and you draw it against Germany, Belgium, France etc so be it um, but yeah it's one of those things I think England have to rely on friendlies against those elite teams to try and get that competitive edge
0: I think the other thing to add at this point is also while we kind of mock those less sides um, they're actually starting to kind of get better over time. Um, So I'm thinking of the likes of like Albania, for example, when they first started off, they've made a Euros now. Um, You know, we, we, we kind of spoke about Goran Pandev and North Macedonia, how they've reached uh, Euros as well. So I think, we're starting to see them becoming a lot more competitive and, you know, challenging the likes of England, for example. So I don't think it's going to be straightforward. Um, so I get it. I, I would say I, from my point of view, I'd actually want England to be in a more competitive group um, just to give them something more to worry about um, and certainly challenge the players a bit more. Um, but competitively, it seems to be always the way that they always seem to have an easy group and then go into the tournament with high expectations. Um, so, um, But if I put on my Poland hat for a second as well, um, I do genuinely feel that it's going to be interesting to see how that group of players perform. Because the World Cup qualifiers this time round are going to start before the Euros get played out next year. And there is an ill feeling um, around the current coach, Jerzy Bzeczek, uh right now, who he's playing very much a, like a Mourinho-esque football, um, but he's got talented players at his disposal, which is the frustrating bit for Poland fans. I mean, with a talisman like Lewandowski, for example, you expect maybe free-flowing football or the football that you see at Bayern but we're not able to replicate that purely because one Lewandowski is a one-off you you don't get those kind of quality players in Poland really the second bit is we and this is something I alluded to in the Ryan Hubbard podcast which was we don't seem to have a plan b so the moment Lewandowski is marked out of the game or, you know, say, God forbid, something happened to Lewandowski, then we, we we don't know what to do because we don't tend to use Milek, for example, or Piontek playing together or into a kind of role where, you know, they can challenge. And this is the fear factor right now is we're not playing great football. We're expected to do well. We do qualify well out of these groups. Granted, I, you know, if we we say this group right now, i will be happy taking second place for Poland. But I do genuinely feel that Hungary are a lot better than the previous Hungary sides. They made, I think, it was it the Euros a few years ago um, with when they had Sultan Gira playing for them. And I do genuinely feel that Hungary have upped their game in recent years. And for me, it'll be just a question of. Can Poland get the better of Hungary? If they do, then they'll probably nail second place as a minimum and maybe draw the games against England. So it'll be down to England to better those results, really. Um, But yeah, it's going to be interesting because there's a lot of ill-feeling right now in Poland around the national team. They feel they should be playing better. The problem is um, we don't know who the better coach is right now out there for Poland to have. So... I think, obviously, times will change by what I'm saying right now to potentially that match. Um, So we'll wait and see what happens. But yeah, for me, if Poland can get second place, that's a great achievement in my eyes. Um, If they can beat England, that'll be a shockwave for England. But I can't see it happening personally. So um, we'll wait and see. We'll wait and see. Um, Let's move on to part two. So Craig, fill us in around the fixtures that are taking place this weekend.
2: Yeah, so I always try and pick out the games that are actually on TV, um, so that you know us and the listeners can can go and watch. So it starts off on Friday night in Serie A. So we've got Sassuolo, who are currently sat in fifth play uh People in Benevento, at uh, quarter to eight on Friday night. We've also got Leeds versus West Ham, eight o'clock. Um, on Saturday, as you would imagine, a pretty stacked schedule. Rules versus Villa is the now infamous half-past 12 BT Sport game. Um, Dortmund <laughs> versus Stuttgart at half-past two. Now, Stuttgart got promoted last season, um, but are currently sat in ninth playing some good stuff, so that might be a better game than than it looks on paper. Uh, Wickham Wanderers play Coventry at three o'clock, which I'm going to watch this week for a change. Uh, Marseille versus Monaco at four o'clock in France. Uh, for me, game of the weekend, Man United versus Man City. Match at half past five on Sky. Union Berlin versus Bayern, also half past five. Uh, and then to Saturday night, Adam Wisla Krakow are playing Leisure Warsaw, which uh, yes. looks like a big game in, in Poland. Uh, and then your two Saturday night games, Everton versus Chelsea, or the one that I will certainly watching, Real Madrid versus Atletico Madrid. Uh, yeah. And then on to Sunday, again, Pack card, Cal played are playing Inter at half-past 11 in the morning. Southampton versus Sheffield United, you're 12 o'clock. Uh, the famous Glasgow Rangers, as mentioned before, are away to Dundee United, <laughs> that's also 12 o'clock. Uh, a couple of games in Serie A, Atalanta play Fiorentina, and Napoli host Claudio Ranieri's Sampdoria. Uh, in the Premier League, Crystal Palace host Spurs, Augsburg host the abysmal Schalke, going for their 27th consecutive game without a win. That's at half past two. Fulham versus Liverpool, half past four on Sunday. Arsenal versus Burnley and Leicester versus Brighton, both at quarter past seven. The blockbuster game in Serie A this weekend, AC Milan versus Parma at 19.45. Uh, and then two last games, the dreadful Barcelona host Levante at eight o'clock in the La Liga. And then PSG host Leon at eight o'clock in the league. 1. So a massive round of fixtures this weekend obviously followed by a whole host of games on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, which I won't go into details because it'll it'll take me a while, but the pick of the games is Spurs go to Anfield um, on Wednesday Mm. night next week, which could tell us an awful lot about where this title might might end up heading in England. Do
0: you fancy Spurs to at least get a point at Anfield. I I can see Mourinho parking the bus and getting a result down there and frustrating Klopp, especially the way Klopp has been in recent uh, games about their performance as a team, getting tired and fatigue. Um, So these back-to-back games are going to be really telling on Liverpool right now. But yeah, I mean, it's going to be interesting, isn't it?
2: It's going to be a fascinating game and Spurs have defended very, very well. You you spoke earlier about their the clean sheets in the Premier League of, of recent history. However, they haven't played against an attack, I don't think, in either domestically or in Europe, like the one that Liverpool will field on Wednesday night. And I think if Spurs can, can keep it tight, keep a clean sheet, um Liverpool aren't exactly fantastic at the back at the moment either. Um and Spurs certainly have have the players to punish that. So it'll be a very, very interesting tactical battle between Jurgen Klopp and Jose Mourinho, and it's a game that I will definitely watch on with interest. Yeah, good game.
0: Do you think maybe Mourinho should actually reverse the way he's playing it and go full attack? Bearing in mind that Liverpool are so depleted at the back.
2: Yeah, if if it was me, I would. I I don't think you can afford to sit in and hmm. and take wave after wave of that of that Liverpool attack. I think. Eventually they will they will unlock the door particularly with the with the full backs, uh, and the way that they play personally and I'm not going to give Jose Mourinho tactical advice um, I would <laughs> I would love to see a team go for the jugular against Liverpool I'd love to see a team really hammer and tongs attack and put them under pressure and put them under the back foot um, It looks as if the young goalkeeper. Um, the youth player is going to start again. I'd love to see someone rain shots in on him and really put pressure on that defence and and see what see what happens and really press them high. Um, I just don't think that you can really withstand ninety minutes against um, this Liverpool side the way that they have done against against Arsenal last weekend.
1: Yeah, I hundred percent agree with that. I think Liverpool they they are there to be got at defensively. Mm. Um, you know, especially with the way that Villa. Uh, battered them seven two. Um, I think yeah. I think if Jose is a bit more aggressive, uh, presses a little bit higher, um, and gets Kane and uh, Son in possession higher up the pitch. I think they could cause a lot of damage. Um, yeah, I mean at the same time though, it wouldn't surprise me if Mourinho sat back because uh, as much as we say you can't afford to sit back against his Liverpool team. I remember his Inter Milan team doing just that against Barcelona. Um, to win the Champions League and he pulled it off Um, so you never know it's going to be interesting though
0: And Andy we didn't really get your thoughts on United and City in terms of where you felt that game was going to go Um, where do you think the game's going to be won and lost?
1: It depends what happens in the first half an hour uh, the reason I say that is if United can see their early goals like we did against Southampton, like we did against West Ham, like we did against Leipzig, they'll they'll get absolutely pasted. Um, yeah. And by pasted, I'm thinking the Spurs 6-1 kind of level of pasted. Mm. Um, it, it, I think United have to start strongly. If they, if they start strongly get into a defensive rhythm and start hitting on the counter-attack, it would be tight. But, um, yeah, I think if United don't get past that first half now about proceeding, it's going to be a very, very long afternoon.
0: And I wanted to bring up Bundesliga for a brief moment as well. So, Dortmund are at home to Stuttgart. Um, that could be an interesting match, granted, given, I suppose, Dortmund's performance of late and Stuttgart's kind of steady in that Bundesliga right now. So, Craig... Thoughts? Do you think this is going to be the match that? But Borussia Dortmund certainly need to win.
2: Borussia Dortmund do need to win this. They they do. They've not been great. They they lost at home against Cologne and drew away against Frankfurt. They need a good, convincing win in Stuttgart. As I said, have, have been a bit of a surprise package. They you know they've come back into the Bundesliga after a spell in the the zweite Bundesliga, but they are performing well. They're playing good attacking football. And I think this has got maybe upset written over it. This is not as as straightforward as it looks on paper. And Stuttgart could be a mm. team that could maybe surprise Dortmund. Stuttgart, I think, are probably a better team than Cologne, who beat them last time out at home. Okay. So that's that's definitely worth a worth a watching on Saturday, yeah.
0: And um you alluded to it as well, Marseille versus Monaco. So it's fourth place versus fifth place, um, point between the two, and goal difference wise, Marseille are head by two. Um, it's going to be an interesting match, certainly. Um, And that is a derby in itself as well. So that adds up to that spice as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know who I fancy, but based on what I saw of Marseille against Man City, I actually probably fancy more Monaco than Marseille. I don't know about you guys.
1: Yeah, I I think Monaco have got their act together a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, it's they've, they've been quite un- unconvincing in Europe, though, under villas Um mm. But they have, whilst they do have some, um, they have Florence Halvin, who obviously, apart from his um, awkward spell at Newcastle, is a very, very good player. Uh, Dimitri Payet, as well, is another absolute gem. So, they're, always, they're in with a chance, I would say. Um, so, yeah, it would be, be a good game.
0: Great stuff. So before we end the pod, just want to say thank you to our listeners. Um, getting some more further reaching fans of the pod so we seem to be reaching out to the likes of Poland these days now I don't know if that's to do with our pod recently and um, I forgot about the other country's name but I'll try and inform you guys about what that is because um, we're starting to see a lot more fans around the world listening so thank you for listening and staying with us if you have any questions for any of us feel free to just email or tweet us or also on Instagram we're available um, so before I conclude, just my thanks to Craig and Andy and hope you all have a good weekend. And for now, thank you and goodbye. 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 Pleasure. Goodbye.